It is Thursday, February 15th, 2024, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelly. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a pair of teachers were chosen to do research in Antarctica. How did it go? It's very cliche. I mean, the penguins are just so stinking cute, you know. And so to watch them waddle or porpoising penguins and then just like darting through the water. Plus, the March 5th primary election includes the decision for Arkansas Supreme Court Chief Justice. Please don't send me another novice to train. I've been on the court 14 years. We don't suffer from a lack of outside perspective. And the play Witch uses the 17th century to comment on the 21st. It comes with (laughs) not being seen for who you really are, or maybe seen for who you are. I think there's a lot of levels to be a witch. All that after this hour's news from NPR. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, February 17th at Walton Arts Center with Defying Expectations, showcasing three works that push beyond barriers from Darius Mio's eclectic style to Louise Farang's bold third symphony and Max Brooks' acclaimed violin concerto featuring Sona concertmaster Winona Fifield. Tickets at sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, February 15th, 2024. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF Public Radio, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. First up today on our show, last year, Matthew Holden, a science teacher at Fayetteville High School, and Brittany Berry, a teacher at Helen Tyson Middle School in Springdale, were selected for the Grosvenor Fellowship from the National Geographic Society. As part of their fellowship, both teachers traveled to Antarctica for an expedition led by National Geographic over their winter break. Holden and Barry are back home and bringing what they learned into the classroom. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth caught up with the two of them last week. And it really just blew away all the expectations that I had had. I knew it was going to be amazing, but I had no idea how amazing and how phenomenal. It was very surreal. Sometimes I still feel like, was it really happening? It was just unbelievable, the people that we were able to interact with from around the world and learn from, and obviously the wildlife was just a truly once-in-a-lifetime phenomenal experience. Yeah, and I think Matt hit on a really interesting part of it, and that is the people part. So, you know, you have the other guests on ship. You had the National Geographic Lindblad staff, so the naturalists and the photographers and all of those individuals, those relationships, it was really a blessing. Everybody kind of has an idea of what, like in my mind now, I'm envisioning what that looks like to be on a ship in the Antarctic and, and going through this landscape. What kinds of things were you learning? What sort of lectures were you going to? What were you able to see and interact with? I think for me, kind of that like transformational aha moment was our first day in Antarctica and it was kind of gray and overcast and it was snowing and you went outside and you were like, this is as close to space as I'm ever going to get. It is otherworldly. It does not. To me, that's like the takeaway is it really is like no other place you could ever possibly go. And then as far as the learning aspect of it, what were were some of the like lectures that you were a part of? What was the focus of your expedition? Yeah, so the naturalists on board all specialized in different 
aspects that might be beneficial to the expedition and the environment and wildlife and region. So we had some undersea experts that would dive down and show us all about the marine life. We had experts on birds, uh, specifically on penguins. We had experts on pinnipeds. And a botanist. And a botanist. We saw one plant. It was a very exciting moment Mm -hmm. for him. We saw one flowering plant on ours as well, and it was really neat. While I was there, uh, I took some equipment with me to measure water quality samples. So on every outing, whether it was on a Zodiac or on a landing, I would collect water samples and then analyze them for things like pH level, dissolved oxygen, nitrate, and phosphate, things that can be found in runoff or from human activities. And then I was also able to collect some samples and analyze for microplastics, which I do a lot in my own classroom. And unfortunately, we did find microplastics even down in Antarctica. Yeah, Matt and I both are also doing a small pilot with National Geographic, so they sent us with 360 cameras, so we're going to be building some kind of like immersive content. One of the interesting things that I'm posing to my students, as we've even been discussing, like at what point do we say, should people even go to Antarctica? And are there places that should be left alone and unexplored in our own backyard? And that's part of kind of the curricular focus, too. Well, I imagine a lot of these projects are coming out of this experience, but I imagine you would have been doing similar projects or something with your class regardless. So do you feel like this trip, this expedition has helped you or given you more tools to be able to do that work better or more efficiently or with a bigger network? I think that the people that I met and also just meeting Brittany has provided me with so many more resources than I had prior to this experience. I'm learning about all sorts of new immersive technology that I've never had any experience with before, and I can't wait to get that into my classroom and have my students get to explore the world using that. I think I come back a lot to the quote, people love what they can understand and they protect what they love. And so we're working on getting our students to really understand how what happens here has a much broader impact on the world and getting them to understand why they should care about Antarctica, right? It's a place really far away that that probably most or all of them might never go. And, and until they understand it, they can't love it. Until they love it, they're not going to be as invested in protecting it. All right. Finally, guys, the real hard-hitting question. What was the best thing, the best animal experience maybe that you saw on the trip (laughs) or anything, you know, any kind of wild experience that you had that you were in awe of? So I know on our previous interview, I told you I was really hoping to see a blue whale. We did see a blue whale blow out water through its blowhole from a distance, but we weren't actually able to see the animal itself. So probably the best wildlife experience I got was seeing a pod of about 17 orcas. It was a beautiful sunny day. The water was super calm. It looked like glass, and they just circled the boat for about 30 minutes. We just got to sit there and take in the wonder. It was just unbelievable. 
The other thing is very cliche. I mean, the penguins are just so stinking cute. And so to watch them waddle or porpoising penguins, mm-hmm. so them just like darting through the water. And they're not afraid of you. They have no, no land predators. So they'll walk right up to you. So you got to walk away from them. Yeah, I know. Because you you're like at yeah. a distance from the penguins. So you're like, you know, you're backing up. And they have their little penguin highways. And you have to make sure that there's plenty of room for them to get through. Um, that's definitely been the most popular with my students. I can't yeah. seem to get enough of the penguins. <laughs> All right. Well, Matt, Brittany, anything else you guys wanted to add or say or think people should know? Be on the lookout for our talk, hopefully, <laughs> this summer at the Fayetteville Public Library. And please reach out if you have any questions about our experience or if you're interested in participating in the fellowship yourself. I'll just do a shameless National Geographic plug as someone who just loved the magazines as a kid. Look at the world. Mm -hmm. It is really an amazing place. That was Brittany Berry and Matthew Holden speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. You can find a link to their pre-trip conversation as part of this story on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Still to come on Ozarks at Large, the play which is set hundreds of years ago but puts a mirror up to today. It comes with (laughs) not being seen for who you really are or maybe seen for who you are. I think there's a lot of levels to be a witch. A preview later this hour on Ozarks at Large. KUAF's Daily Word Game is a five-letter puzzle available to play right now, as in T-O-D-A-Y. Ugh, okay. You might get the word if you listen to the Ozarks at Large A-U-D-I-O. Okay, okay. Maybe it's because I forgot to remind you that you can play the game at kuaf.com or by subscribing to the Ozarks at Large newsletter that shows up in your email, I-N-B-O-X. Well, maybe you'll have better luck than me. Go try your luck today. For the first time since 2017, Arkansas voters will choose who will serve as the chief justice on the state Supreme Court. But absent any party affiliations, how are voters making that decision? For more, I'm joined by Daniel Breen, news director at Little Rock Public Radio, who helped to moderate a forum for the candidates on the ballot this year. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Matthew. How's it going? Good. So first off, give us just a little bit of background on the Arkansas Supreme Court. Yes, well, the Supreme Court, as the name would suggest, is the highest court in the state. And much like the U.S. Supreme Court, it holds the power of judicial review. That means they're able to overturn state laws for being unconstitutional. The court also serves as the highest appellate court in the state, meaning if your case has exhausted all of its possible appeals, it'll go to the Supreme Court if they choose to take it up. Now, the court is made up of seven members currently, including the Chief Justice. The incumbent Chief Justice, John Dan Kemp, is retiring after serving on the court since 2017. And a little bit unique to Arkansas is that it is us, the voters, who decide who sits on the court, including in the Chief Justice spot. Okay, so what does the Chief Justice do? Well, as the title would suggest, they are a sitting justice on the state Supreme Court. They also write the official opinion of the court at the end of their considerations if they are in the majority, if the chief justice is in the majority. 
But in addition to those duties, the Chief Justice also serves as the top administrator of the entire Arkansas court system. That means they're a little bit more involved than the other justices in things like setting policy, setting up new specialty courts, and essentially overseeing the operations across all of the different levels of the justice system in the state. Okay, so we've got a few people who are running for this position. Tell us about the candidates. Who's running? Yeah, so we have a slate of four candidates for the chief justice spot this election cycle, three of whom are already associate justices on the Supreme Court. Those are Karen Baker, Barbara Womack-Webb, and Rhonda Wood. Justice Baker is the most senior of the group. She's served on the court since 2011. Justice Wood has served since 2015, and Justice Webb is a relative newcomer to the court. She was elected in 2020 and began serving the following year. And joining them in the field of candidates is Jay Martin, who isn't currently serving on the court. He's a former Democratic lawmaker and currently runs a law firm here in Little Rock. So kind of interesting to note that you don't actually have to be a Supreme Court justice to run for chief justice. And also important to mention, especially in Martin's case, that all judicial elections in Arkansas are nonpartisan. So while Martin did serve in the legislature as a Democrat, he is not running for chief justice with any official party affiliation. And that is also the case for Justice Barbara Womack-Webb, who has never served herself in any partisan political office, but she is married to the former head of the Republican Party of Arkansas, Doyle Webb. I understand you all hosted a forum with the candidates earlier this week. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so us here at Little Rock Public Radio, we hosted a forum along with the Central Arkansas Library System and the League of Women Voters of Pulaski County. And I think it was pretty helpful to sort of make those distinctions between the candidates, especially in a race where maybe it's not as clear to voters how to distinguish between them. We started off by asking candidates what their top priorities would be as Chief Justice. Justice Baker said that she would like to strengthen the state's Bar Association and dedicate more money to programs helping with attorneys' mental health. Justices Webb and Wood both said they'd work to embrace new technology and to work to make the courts more accessible to the general public. And Martin said he is running as an outsider, that the court needs a fresh perspective, and that there needs to be more of a focus on security for courthouses. And Justice Karen Baker, in a response later, seemed to highlight Martin's relative lack of experience on the court. Please don't send me another novice to train. I've been on the court 14 years. We don't suffer from a lack of outside perspective. We have new justices coming on all the time. And it takes the court a while to work out what's going on and learn to work collaboratively together, which is harder than you think. And again, this is a nonpartisan judicial election, so not nearly as many fireworks or attacks as we would come to expect from, say, like a presidential debate. But again, interesting to see some of the delineations being made between the candidates. Yeah, it's probably a breath of fresh air, if anything. Um, What else did candidates discuss? Well, one of our questions focused on some of the misconceptions about the court system that people might have. Justice Webb said a common attitude is that you need to have a lot of money to have a good outcome in the justice system. She also cited her experience working to root out corruption in her time as a prosecutor. When I became prosecutor, our prosecutor was running the office as a criminal enterprise through the drug trade. Our kids were getting drugs at school. Our neighborhoods were not safe. And I made it a passion, a priority of mine when I became prosecutor to, to go after the drug 
war. And we, we cleaned up Saline County. We shut down 500 meth labs the first year I was prosecutor. And we also spoke a bit about specialty courts. Justice Wood said that she would work to strengthen the existing drug and juvenile courts in the state also to strengthen treatment options. There are no longer any substance abuse beds, inpatient facility beds for juveniles in the state of Arkansas. So back when I was on the trial bench, there used to be 50 to 60 and there are none um, in Arkansas. And so that is something that I've been working on, um, trying to work with DHS to get that and to get a Medicaid waiver, but there are zero. And so that is creating a tremendous difficulty and we are having, I mean, juveniles are dying um, because of drug problems in the state of Arkansas. And last we talked about the all-important separation of powers. A lot of voters have a lot of opinions on what the roles of each branch of government should be. And that is the same for the candidates. Martin highlighted his experience as a former legislator, saying that would help to get things done that the court needs legislative approval for. He has a good relationship with the legislature. Our courthouses have got to be safe. We've got to address security in our courthouses. The technology that's needed, those things we're going to have to work with the legislature to help us with. And I think I'm uniquely qualified to work with the legislature to get real change accomplished and to be the ambassador uh, for uh, for the Supreme Court as Chief Justice with the other branches of government. Certainly there's separation of powers, but uh, there are also... Uh, allies. The other candidates agreed that the judiciary has to be separate and independent from the legislative and executive branches of government. Justice Webb said the court can be more of an asset to those branches while maintaining independence at the same time. Y'all read the paper, y'all watch the TV, you're seeing that a lot of things happen at the legislature and a lot of things happen at the executive branch, the governor's office, but right now all the fights are in the court system. And that's where the the last fights are going to be held, and it's very important as to who who is in the court system and at your Supreme Court, and I believe it's very important who your Chief Justice is. And it is very important to note this election for Chief Justice of the Arkansas Supreme Court is not in November, it is on March 5th, and early voting will start two weeks before that. Very helpful to remember that. That's Daniel Breen, News Director of Little Rock Public Radio. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Matthew. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal report. I'm Paul Gatling. The University of Arkansas Athletics Department achieved a record operating revenue of $167.3 million in fiscal year 2023. That is the 12-month period that ended June 30th, 2023. The Athletics Department reported $166.5 million in expenses, also an all-time high, for an operating surplus of less than $1 million. The figures are from the university's annual financial report to the NCAA. Fort Smith-based Landmark PLC conducts the annual audit. The Athletics Department's revenues continue a rapid climb. The university reported $152.5 million in revenue in fiscal year 2022 and $132.2 million in fiscal year 2021. We've got more reporting on some of the numbers included in the university's annual financial review of the athletics department, and you can find that online at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. 
Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Live fearless. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. That's because First Security is 100% focused on serving customers all across the state and nowhere else. It's local banking with local commitment. First Security. Bank better. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. The mission of the Urban League of the state of Arkansas is to advance economic and social prosperity for underserved Arkansans by creating access to opportunity through advocacy, community partnerships, programs, and services. Scott Hamilton is the CEO and president. Sherman Tate is chairman of the board. In a recent interview with Roby Brock, they discussed a range of statewide issues including education and mental health. You guys have been working a lot on the LEARNS Act. It's right. gone into effect now. We're, yes. we're seeing how it plays out in so many different roles and capacities. Scott, give me a little bit of your assessment of where you think it is benefiting and right. where you think perhaps some improvements need to be made. Great, yeah. We read all 145 pages actually twice. And uh, quite frankly, there's some very good things in the LEARNS Act. I mean, third grade literacy. I mean, a third grader should be able to read it third grade level, right? Uh, the, 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 the community service hours. We believe that that's a good thing for a student to, you know, work in their community, get to know, do things that are important to their communities. That gives them the type of experience and engagement I think that they need to be successful. Um, the career track development. I mean, again, to identify what do I want to do when I graduate? So these are all areas, Roby, that we're trying at the Urban League going around the state, talking to superintendents. We've had some conversations uh, with some folks from the Department of Education of how can the Urban League be helpful to make sure all kids in the state are aware of these requirements, if their parents are aware, and if there are things that we can do to help to make sure those things happen, happen. Um, you know, there's some concerns. I think it was, it was a lot that was put out there quickly, right? Now, education is a big big challenge and so uh, it's like eating an elephant man you just got to take a bite of this thing <laughs> but I think at the end of the day there's a lot out there and so a little bit of our concern is making sure that again students parents school districts are very aware of some of the requirements and finding ways to make sure the students are able to uh, to, to meet the requirements one of the first school districts to get um, some benefit some would argue some harm some sure. others would argue was the Marvel school district uh, Anybody in this room at this table from maybe Marvel, Arkansas has some connections to Marvel, Arkansas? No. no oh, you right. do? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Anyhow, what's your, what's your take on the LEARNS Act and how it has helped and hurt? Well, I, I think Scott was on target, and, and I think the, there's potential based on the LEARNS Act that will, if, if followed, and, and it, it will benefit the community black and white what 
we have to continue to do is what Scott was mentioning in terms of working with people, educating them about what's going on and what is going to happen if we do certain things versus what will happen if we don't do certain things. And one of the things that I've discovered uh, is the need to visit more, and Scott and I have talked about this and we're working on it, work more with the parents. Parents have to understand their responsibility and how important it is that they do what needs to be done in terms of coaching and teaching and supporting their, their, not only their children, but also being available and accessible to uh, the people at the school, the teachers in the classroom, the principals, the superintendents, going to school board meetings, yeah. mm-hmm. being a part you of that. You gotta be activists. You gotta be activists. Yeah. You gotta speak your, your, what you believe and, and let your voice be heard right. in a constructive way. Mental health, another big issue the Urban League has concerns about and is working to do. Scott, give me a little bit of an understanding of what your role is in that. What are you guys trying to um, accomplish? So, yeah, Roby, uh, mental health awareness is, is a big focus for us in 2024. We want to make sure that people understand that it's a real deal, right? Coming out of COVID, being uh, you know somewhat kind of confined, a lot of our youth, we're seeing challenges. Uh, in terms of how they're responding to really getting re-socialized. And a lot of that is, is, is a mental health awareness factor, stresses, concerns, and issues that folks have. So what we're trying to do at the Urban League is, is really get the word out, make sure that people are very comfortable saying, it's okay, you know, acknowledge, I'm struggling with something, something's frustrating me, and, and talk with someone, you know, reach out. There's so many services that are out there. And so what we're doing at the Urban League is really just trying to get the word out, it's okay, it's fine, address these things, and a lot of times they can make a big difference in folks' lives. Are you guys kind of a clearinghouse for connecting all of those different resources that are out there? You're not trying to launch any new initiative on on your own. That's correct, yeah. I've got enough mental health challenges personally, (laughs) so therefore I'm looking for as many resources there. That's exactly what we do. In fact, uh, Roby, that's what the Urban League does in most cases. They're tons of support services and opportunities to address issues. So in this mental health space, that's exactly what we're doing. So we've been talking with UAMS, uh, the Lorenzo Lewis Confess Project. There's numerous opportunities out there, counselors at school districts, really just making sure that we get folks, A, to, to have that conversation, and then we can direct them to different options. That is Scott Hamilton and Sherman Tate, the CEO and board chairman, respectively, of the Urban League of Arkansas. That interview was on a recent episode of Talk Business and Politics with Roby Brock, and you can catch that each Sunday morning at 9.30 on Fox 24 News. In other news this week, Brent Williams is two weeks into his appointment as Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. Williams is the 11th full-time Dean of the UA Business School since 1926, but he is the first native Arkansan to have that job since it was renamed in 1998. What's old is new again at Tyson Foods. The company is brandishing a new corporate logo that is consistent with the Tyson Foods chicken brand and is a return to the familiar red and yellow mark with the company name displayed in the middle of an oval. 
It harkens back to the company's roots nearly 90 years ago as a chicken business and was unveiled internally last week following the company's shareholder meeting. And the latest issue of the magazine is out this week. For our cover story, Lauren Waldrop, executive director of the Arkansas Advanced Energy Association and other energy leaders discuss the potential and pitfalls for the upcoming year. Plus, a $130 million energy storage project in Benton County aims to boost Arkansas's grid stability. And Walmart adds to its land holdings with a strategic land acquisition along Walton Boulevard in Bentonville. You can read the digital version of the magazine for free at nwabusinessjournal.com where you can also follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. University of Arkansas Theater returns to the global campus next week for Jen Silverman's retelling of a centuries-old play, which, Though set in the 17th century, the conflicts and challenges are very much 21st century. Last week, director Stephen Marzoff and actors Marjorie Gass and Sean Ryan discussed the play that opens February 23rd. I asked Marjorie why, in the play, she's labeled a witch. Oh, goodness. Well, I think that really lands on the perception of others, of uh, the label of which comes with the treatment of townspeople. It comes with just um, (laughs) not being seen for who you really are or maybe seen for who you are. I think there's a lot of levels to be a witch. Um, I think anybody who sees this show, though, will be surprised that um, each character is labeled in their own way. Yeah, being a witch is really the perception of others, I would say. Somebody, I can't remember who it's attributed to, said, you know, dying is easy, comedy is hard. Do you find that to be the case? I find that comedians are often the most attuned to what is happening in today's society. So I think that that is true in a sense because it's really hard to be aware of everything that's happening and not have a sense of humor. Um, You can easily get dragged down in the bogs of what's happening, and I think we see that in this show. Uh, You start to have a tunnel vision, and you start to have um insular view and a self-centered view of the world, and you can fall down into dark places. But that also can be really funny to watch (laughs) as an audience member, so... I think comedy is is hard, but it's a necessary aspect of navigating this world. Other than othering, what are some of the other reflections that we'll see on stage that will, you know, let us know that there is a bit of the 21st century here? Thematically, I would say Silverman, she brings up themes dealing with classism, sexuality, Gender roles is a big one in this play. And certainly being labeled something, and I was thinking about this on the way here when I was picking up Sean and Marjorie, that we live in a time right now in which you can be canceled like that. You're labeled something immediately and you're canceled and it's over and done with. 
And that is what we see what has happened to Elizabeth, a.k.a. the witch in this play. And I think that Silverman has done a really, really good job of highlighting that and the effect that that can have on someone in a really negative way. Let's not give too much away, but who labels you a witch or how does that come about? Mm. So uh, within the script, we don't have an exact reason for why she is labeled a witch. So as an actor, we kind of get to figure that out and take context clues from the script and obviously work with the director and um, with the other actors as well. But um, I would say the behavior perceived by others from my character, Elizabeth, is something that attributes um, acting in her own way, going um, off of the beaten path and doing things in ways that women in that time didn't go about doing things. What can you tell us about your character? My character is a, a farmer boy. He is from outside of wealth, outside of abundance, and he is determined to provide a better life for himself and his offsprings and his family than he was given. And he will do whatever it takes to achieve a better outcome for himself than he was originally provided in life. And he is currently riding off of the graces of uh, Sir Arthur the ruler of this land in which we reside. Whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. That sounds... Um, Ominous. Opportunistic? Absolutely. <laughs> Do you like the character? I think that as an actor, we are required <laughs> to <laughs> extend empathy and love to every sure. aspect of okay. humanity. Gotcha. Would I go out for a drink with this man? Probably not. Do you like inhabiting him for a couple of hours. I find it to be a really fascinating study of humanity. So yes, I, I mean, that's why I got into this, is to just really explore all of the levels at which humans can exist. So, And to explore it with people that you trust and within the context of a story that you believe in and that you see as impactful in the world that we exist in today is such a gift. So I'm really grateful to be able to step on the stage into this role uh, with these incredibly talented people each night. Of course, you got to know the lines, you got to hit the marks, you got to you know read your fellow actors and know how that's working. What sort of other discussions or conversations take place before rehearsals and during rehearsals? Um, I would say that there is a discussion. So we have some stage combat and stage intimacy that happens on stage. So we always have conversations about where actors are on any given night to make sure that we are being safe and connected when we are doing these choreographed motions on stage. So that is a discussion that's happening on a technical level, I would say, before rehearsals. And then I think on a, on a textual level, we do spend quite a a large amount of time at the beginning of the process, we spent quite a large amount of time really diving into why this story, why now, and drawing parallels between this, not only the original text from Jacobean times to what we have in front of us written by the incredible Jen Silverman, but to that of today. We spent a lot of time drawing those parallels and I think it just deepens the story for each of us. We also just 
We have a lot of fun in the rehearsal room. <laughs> I mean, we laugh and we talk about everything and anything. <laughs> that is, it's really important because, you know, like I said, this is a dark comedy and there are comedic elements to it for sure. But it's pretty heavy, some of the, mm. the material in this. And the catharsis that all of the actors have to go through is not an easy thing to do. So when we can find levity in the rehearsal room, whether that's table work, on a break, even we've just got done with the scene. And I love watching Sean and Mar- um, Sean and uh, Bella, who's another a- actor in the show, that they have a little checkout at the end that they do. But what is it, Sean? What is the... Uh, we shake hands. We very seriously lock eyes. And we say, nice to meet you. And then we turn around and we hit our head three times and say, stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Which, written by Jen Silverman, opens at the Global Campus Theater on the Fayetteville Square February 23rd and runs through March 3rd. Actor Sean Ryan and Marjorie Gast, along with director Stephen Marzoff, joined me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last week. Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with sound perimeter. When I was little, my mom and I would lie down on the grass to look at the sky and try to find in the clouds familiar shapes and objects while making up stories of why a dragon was chasing a mouse or justifying the dissolution of an airplane and the emergence of ice cream cones. We open some perimeter today with celebrated American pianist Josh Tatsuo Kulin performing Clouds by Arkansas native composer Florence Price, a piece written in 1947. Let us let Clouds, one of Florence Price's most performed pieces and one of the most beautiful, engage us in the timeless art of cloud watching or cloud listening. Thank you. 
That was American pianist Josh Tatsuo Kulin performing Clouds by Arkansas native composer Florence Price from a 2021 live recorded performance at Allegro Recordings in Burbank, California. Italian composer and pianist Ludovico Einaudi, born in 1955, began his career in music at the age of 11 and later attended the Verdi Conservatory in Milan. His music brings together classical traditions intertwined with pop, world music, rock, and many other styles. Einaudi wrote Nuvoli Bianchi, White Clouds, in 2004, a piece that was released on his album Una Mattina, One Morning. In an interview talking about Una Mattina, Eunadi says, quote, If someone asked me about this album, I would say it is a collection of songs linked together by a story. But unlike my other albums, it doesn't belong to a time in the past. It speaks about me now, my life, the things around me, my piano, which I have nicknamed Tagore, my children, Jessica and Leo, the orange killing carpet that brightens up the living room, the clouds sailing slowly across the sky, the sunlight coming through the window, the music I listen to, the books I read and those I don't read, my memories, my friends and the people I love. the sky, everything else, it is just the weather. By Buddhist nun, teacher and author Pema Chodron, quote, is one of my favorite of all time. Her words remind me of the ever-changing nature of our human experiences and external circumstances in juxtaposition to our deep inner essence, constant and unchanging. I hope those coming and going clouds from today's music brought images, memories, and ideas to your present, weaving your narratives and interpretations into the vast expanse of the heavens and your own wholeness. Find out about our future music and musicians in the program notes. This is Leah Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with sound perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a show written and hosted by me and produced by Sophia Nurani, KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This segment is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. Have a good day.
love last long past Valentine's Day and the box chocolates. Example A, Kathy and Jim Webster. They took advantage of KUAF's mobile listening labs trip to Butterfield Trail Village in Fayetteville this month to share some details of their more than 50-year marriage and even longer relationship. Well, we met a long time ago. Uh, I was 13 and you were... 14. 14. And we met at church. In Denton, Texas. Our families went to a church, same church, in Denton, Texas. She lived in, in Argyle, uh, Texas, which is south of Denton. And I lived, uh, I lived uh, gosh, since 1957 in, in, uh, in Denton with my family. So we, we, I knew the whole family. I think the family liked me better than she did at that point in time. No, that's not true. <laughs> she was born in Dallas, Island Park, University Park in Dallas. And then her, her father retired from business and went back to school at North Texas State, at that time University of North Texas now, to get his Ph.D. and to teach. And so he moved them. From downtown Dallas, moved them all the way out to Argyle, which was a very small rural town south of yeah. Denton, between Denton and Fort Worth. And uh, my eighth grade class, we had about 12 in the class. So that tells you how small Argyle was. We've got together in, in church in the youth in the youth program first, and. Uh, uh, I felt I felt for her. I had a mad crush on her, but she did not on me. The feeling was not mutual. And it became mutual <laughs> later. <laughs> and so um, then we went to through uh, junior high and high school together, and uh, then graduated at that point in time. They moved to Denton. Oh gosh, they moved to Denton. Well, it was my senior year in high school, mm-hmm. which was nine. You want me to say when it was? You go right ahead. Nineteen sixty seven was her senior year. Mine was sixty six. So I've known her since she was thirteen years old, which is as she she said. So that's that's quite a time. And we, as as indicated, families were aware of each other and did a lot of things at church. But other than that. Uh, other than that, they we were not that close. Yeah. Other than the fact, I still had a secret crush on her. I picked her up at her friend's house, and we went to the movies. And uh, I wasn't sure we were going to have it. Uh, they have the date because she developed. Uh, I was bitten by a spider. Oh, that's right. On my face. So for your first date, that's really not <laughs> how you want to start it, but. So, I mean, I remember we had a great time. I did. I had a great time. I'm not sure whether she did or not. I did. (laughs) But obviously ended okay. (laughs) Then he went, he was at Purdue University, and I went to North Texas State. And so I think it was my sophomore year. Yeah, my sophomore year was when he came home from Purdue, and I have twin brothers, and they are seven years younger than I am. But they saw Jim at the park, and he, they said, you ought to ask our sister out for a date. No, they asked whether or not I wanted to go see her sister. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Which was 
Which <laughs> I took them home that day. I was out driving home from a friend's house. I stopped and asked them, and they said, "Well, no, we're just walking home." And they lived uh, maybe two miles away. And I said, "Well, jump in, and I'll take you home." That's when our romance, our our love story, yeah, that's began, true. Truly, been. Then that was my uh, junior year at Purdue. And so I went back to school, and we just talked for a long time on via long distance, via telephone. And yeah, each Saturday. Yeah. We talked for about an hour or so. And then it happened. Uh, I got up enough courage to ask her if she wanted to do uh, a lot more than just date. In other words, do you want to get married? This was after, I don't know. Uh, was it Thanksgiving? Yeah, no, it was during the summertime. I was oh. home during the summertime, and <laughs> and uh, we went to Dallas, uh, drove down to Dallas. It's only about 36 miles away to go to the show, and then we'd always go to Bob's Big Boy and have a Sunday after the show before we drive back to Denton. So uh, then... Um, we stopped because I had wanted to ask her the question, and luckily she said yes. Kathy and Jim Webster recorded with the KUAF Mobile Listening Lab at Butterfield Trail Village in Fayetteville this month. Our Listening Lab administrator is Emerson Alexander, and the lab is a possibility thanks to funding from the Walmart Foundation's Creating Community in Northwest Arkansas Through Bridging and Belonging Initiative. You can learn more at Listening Lab KUAF. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today include Daniel Carruth, Daniel Breen, Paul Gatling, Roby Brock, and Leah Uribe. Emerson Alexander is the Listening Lab Coordinator. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Another show tomorrow. I'll be here. Uh, Michael Tilly will not be able to be with us tomorrow, but we'll have 54 minutes of original content that as, will as, interest you, yes. As we do nearly every day yes. on this show. Um the the really lovely conversation between Kathy and Jim, uh, Emerson gathered a lot of those. Oh, yes. You can find a few more of those on the Listening Lab website. Um, he came back with just so many really fun stories. He enjoyed and just, it. It's, it's really a cool opportunity to be able to do that. We got to have more of you interested in the mobile listening lab or coming here. We want to hear your stories. Absolutely. And I think the, f- the, the, the fun thing is people don't often think that their stories are that interesting. Oh, they are. And they are. I promise you that because yes. we listen to and we talk to interesting people here in our community all day, every day. That's right. All right. Uh, we will have a brand new show tomorrow uh, from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Walton Arts Center presents the Tony Award-winning musical Company, February 20th through the 25th. Re-envisioned for the 21st century with a woman in the leading role, this comedy follows 35-year-old Bobby as she fields questions from friends and family about her love life. Information at waltonartscenter.org.